the gospel is and must always remain the primary message of the church. We've talked about this in previous weeks as we've looked at this series. Uh, and I'll mention it in some way every week probably while we have the series. With the idea that the gospel must be the primary message of the church is a, a remembrance on our part. We have to remember the church isn't a building. It's the people. Uh, so a part of what it means for the, the gospel to be the primary message of the church, it means for us as individuals, the gospel must be our primary message as well. Right? We, we must be explicit in proclaiming the gospel to people who need to hear it and he, who need to know about Jesus. Now, when we look at the early church, what we find is that the, the church spread not so much by big days, like what like Billy Graham type evangelistic services. Now those happen. The day of Pentecost, Peter and John going to the temple to pray, those kind of days happen. But by and large, the church spread throughout the world, not through big days like that, but through the church, the people, as they went out, they proclaimed the gospel to people who had never heard about Jesus. Acts chapter 8, it, it talks about the persecution in Jerusalem increased to such an extent that the regular people all left. Right? They had to flee. Now the, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, but the regular folks, they all left. And as they went, the Bible said, they began to share the gospel everywhere they went. That is how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Guyman, Oklahoma. Right? That's how it went to the ends of the earth, was by one person telling the gospel to another person. This is still the most effective way for the gospel to spread in our world. Right? In Guyman, Oklahoma, the best way for the gospel to spread is, it would be great if everybody that's lost in Guyman would come to our church and hear a gospel message and be saved. But the reality is, fewer and fewer regular people are sitting at home without Jesus and deciding, I think I ought to go to church to see if they have something I need. That's not happening in our day anymore. The world has moved to a what we often call a post-Christian kind of influence. And they don't see the church as anything of value at all. They look at a building and they see nothing that they need. But what they don't know is there are people in the building that they know. right? And so while they will never darken the door of our church, if they have a relationship with you or a relationship with me, they will allow us to speak the gospel to them. And this is what we have to do. We have to use those opportunities that we're given to tell them about Jesus. But it's not enough for us to just explain the gospel. Once we've laid out the gospel, we then have to call on them to respond to it. Right? The gospel is a message that demands a response. When you look at the teaching of Jesus, all of his teaching, he taught and then there was a response. There was a demand for people to do something in response to it. Just think about what the gospel is. I mean, we're talking about God became a man, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again. That, that is a life-changing, if it's true, kind of message. It's not something that we hear and be like, well, that was cool. If it's true, if it's real, it changes everything. And so, we share the gospel with them, and then we have to call on them to make a response. There is an element in which we have to put them on the spot and say... What will you do with Christ? What are you going to do about this? What I want to do tonight is we're going to look at the proper response to the gospel. 
So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Uh, That should be on page 879 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Now the majority of what we're going to look at really comes from verse 1. But we're going to look at all 11 verses because they're all a part of our main text. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and after that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. Last of all he was seen of me as one born out of due time. For I am the least of all the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was given to me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. title of the message tonight is Receiving the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness, for the opportunity we have to gather to sing your praise, to study your word. As we look at your word tonight, let it take root in our heart. Help us, Lord, to be a people that are bold with the gospel. Let us call on people to respond and let us see people respond in ways that bring life and and salvation to them. Have your way. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I just do all things for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We see in verse 1, Paul preached the gospel to them. And he says, and and which he also received. Now, how did they receive it? What did they do in order to receive the gospel? Well, Paul doesn't give us the answer in 1 Corinthians. But when we look at other places where Paul preached and where Paul taught, we find the answer. right? Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith. Toward our Lord Jesus Christ. After he preached the gospel. He preached there must be repentance toward God. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the response to the gospel. Leading to receiving the gospel. That leads to salvation through the gospel. Our key truth. Is people are saved. As they receive the gospel through repentance and faith. People are saved as they receive the gospel through repentance and faith. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at a couple of different places. And we're going to talk about what each of these look like. Right? So repentance toward God. That's that's where we're starting. Now, repentance, as we talk about frequently, is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Now the change of life is a critical part of repentance. And repentance is preceded by a sorrow for the sin committed. We looked at this verse Sunday. Of godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. <clears throat> the sorrow God uses. 
that brings repentance unto salvation right, is, is not being sorry we got caught. That is a, a worldly sorrow. Right? And, and the reason it's a worldly sorrow is if I'm only sorry I got caught, then I'm only going to change until or as long as I'm embarrassed about being caught or as long as I'm in trouble about being caught. But once I'm over that, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go right back to doing what I've done before. Right? The, the sorrow that God uses, the godly sorrow, isn't afraid that God is going to punish us. But again, if I'm only sorry because I'm afraid God is going to punish me or bad things are going to happen, then my repentance will only last until I'm sure nothing bad is going to happen. And then when I'm sure nothing bad is going to happen, I will go back to doing what it was I had done. Godly sorrow that brings repentance unto salvation is being sorry that we sinned to begin with. Right? It's being sorry for the act itself. Whether or not I get caught. Whether or not there are any consequences for it. The fact that I have sinned against a holy God who loves me and sent His Son to die for me produces a kind of repentance that is life-changing. Right? It leads us to not want to take part in that sin any longer. And the godly sorrow for sin is a huge part of what leads to the change of life. Now the change of life aspect of repentance is often underemphasized and underestimated in our day. But it's not in Scripture. Paul, when he preached, he preached that people should do, should repent, turn to God, and do works meet for repentance. Now, a question can come up. What does it mean to do works that are meet for repentance. So we're going to spend the rest of this point on. Look at Luke chapter 3. Page 782. Yeah. In the first few verses of Luke 7. Luke 3, I'm sorry, Luke 3. John the Baptist begins his ministry. If you look at verse 3, you see that John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Right, so John preached the message of repentance. <clears throat> As John preached, he gathered a crowd. People began to come to him to listen to what he had to say, and they wanted to be baptized to receive the remission. For their sins. Now, all in all, this would sound like exactly what you want people to do. But notice what John says as people come. Look at verse 7. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, clearly, John had never read the book on how to win friends and influence people. He didn't know how to be nice and accept that they were there. And so he goes on in the next verse and says, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Right. So he tells them, it's not enough to just come and want to be baptized. Your life needs to bear fruit that is worthy, that is good enough for what repentance is. Now he tells them, in the rest of verse 8 and 9, don't 
Don't trust in the fact that you're Jews, essentially is what he's saying. That's not going to be enough. Right? Your ethnicity, your earthly lineage, none of that stuff is going to matter. If you don't repent, and if you do not bear fruit worthy of repentance, then there is judgment coming, and you will face the judgment. So, in verse 10, the people say, what shall we do? Then in verse 12, it says the publicans, the tax collectors, came to him and said, Master, what shall we do? And in verse 14, the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? Now, they're all asking the same question. He had said you must bear fruit worthy of repentance. And they're asking, what does that look like? I mean, if I'm true, I want this. What does this look like? How do I do this? And so he tells them. Verse 11, he says, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath food, let him do likewise. Verse 13, And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to thee. And he said in verse 14 to the soldiers, Do no violence to any man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Right? The essence of what John the Baptist is telling them is that the, the fruit of repentance, the acts of repentance that are worthy of repentance, is when we, we stop doing the sin and we start doing the opposite. Right? That's kind of what he's saying. Right? So in this passage, what he's saying is first, stop being selfish. And, and this isn't the one that's on your handout. I've got different ones for that. Stop being selfish and be generous. Right? Verse 11. That's what he's saying. They were only caring for themselves and they were letting others do without. The fruit worthy of repentance would be to care about what was going on in the lives of others as well. If they had two tunics and they saw someone who had none, then give that person a tunic. If they had extra food and they saw someone had none, then give them some of their food. Right? He doesn't want them to to care only with words. But don't say, gosh, that's bad. I hope things get better for you. Be warm and well fed and not do anything in response. He said instead, here is the fruit worthy of repentance. Stop caring just about yourself. Start caring about them. And when you have the ability, help them. Secondly, he tells them to stop oppressing others and start treating people justly. Right? Tax collectors and soldiers were notorious for oppressing people in their own ways. Tax collectors were over a particular region. And they were given a specific amount of money to collect. Now, as long as they sent that amount of money back to Rome, Rome did not care what they did or how much other money they collected. So what tax collectors did is they gathered Big brute guards with them. And they went and they exhorted people to give as much as they could. So if if I'm the tax collector and you guys are the region I'm responsible for and I'm supposed to give give $1,000 to Rome, then I'll take me and my burly guards and I'll go to Joe and Sharon and I'll shake them down for as much as I can get. Now if I can get $1,000 from them, I don't stop there. Then I go to Evelyn and Gerald and John 
and Lavona and Scott and Melissa and everybody else and anything over $1,000 I get to keep. Now, Rome doesn't care. right? So if you report, Rome demanded $1,000, Stacy collected $3,000. Rome's going to say, we don't care. So there was no recourse. There was nothing you could do. They were oppressors. The Roman soldiers were also oppressors. They were big and burly and mean. The average Roman soldier was paid very poorly. So what they did in an effort to get more money, more food, and more stuff for themselves was they would shake down the citizens of the land that they conquered. And they would do it in one of two ways. They would say, give me money or I'm going to beat you to death. And people would give them the money. And if they didn't give them the money, they would beat them to death. Or they would say, give me money or I'm going to tell the Rome, or I'm going to tell the, God, the, the judges that you stole or that you raped or you pillaged or you did this or you did that. Now, if you said, well, I didn't do it, and it went before a judge, who is a Roman judge going to believe? A Roman soldier or a bitter, conquered peasant? The Roman soldier. So, and, and if you tried to go and tell the other guards, he's going to beat me up if I don't give him $10 every day. They're going to say, really? Won't you give me $5 then? Right? Nobody cared. Romans did not care about the people they conquered. They cared about Romans. And so there was no recourse for the people. And so what John says to both of them is, is stop it. Right, to the tax collector, stop overcharging people for your own profit. And just collect what's due. To the Roman soldier, stop threatening to beat people up if they don't give you money. Stop threatening to send people to prison. If they don't give you money, just be content with your wages. Stop doing these wrong things. Start doing these right things. The fruit worthy of repentance is stopping sin they were committing and start doing the opposite. And this is still the fruit worthy of repentance. It's when we stop sin and start doing the opposite. Now, there are some implications to this that I think are important. Suppose one of these tax collectors comes to John. I've repented. I want my sins washed away. Baptize him. So he goes in and John baptizes him. And he comes out his, saying his sins have been taken away. And then he immediately goes out and overcharges somebody again. Did that tax collector... Did he genuinely repent? No. Let's say a Roman soldier goes to John claiming repentance, is, is baptized, comes up out of the water claiming his sins are forgiven, and he immediately goes out and threatens someone to get their money. Did the Roman soldier genuinely repent? No, clearly he didn't. This is a key truth for us to get in our day. Because this idea is not emphasized as it should be. Right? Think about what the fruit worthy of repentance would look like in our culture. Right? Like stop fornicating and start and pursue purity. Stop lying and tell the truth. Stop getting drunk and be sober. Stop gossiping 
And let stories die with you. Stop cheating on your spouse and be faithful. Stop this sin and start doing the opposite. Now, if a tax collector who went right back to cheating didn't repent, and if a Roman soldier who went right back to threatening didn't repent, what does it say about a fornicator who goes right back to fornication? What does it say about a liar who goes right back to lying? What does it say about a drunk who goes right back to drinking? What does it say about a gossip who goes right back to gossiping? What does it say about a cheater who goes right back to their adulterous relationship? Did they genuinely repent? No, they didn't. And this is where we have a massive breakdown in our day. People hear the gospel, claim to receive the gospel through repentance and faith, and then go right back to the sin they came from. And when they do, what makes it worse is well-meaning but misinformed Christians tell them they're saved because, quote-unquote, nobody's perfect. We don't find that sort of mindset in Scripture. What we see from from John the Baptist, what we see from Paul, and, and essentially all of Scripture, is that the proof of repentance is in the pudding of a changed life. Repentance always involves a change of life. No one who genuinely repents of their sins stays the same. Repentance always motivates us to live differently. If there is no change in attitude, there is no change of heart, there is no change of life, there is no repentance. Now some in our day push back on this and they say, well, we're saved by faith and not by works. So what you're saying is wrong. And it's true we are saved by faith and not by works. However, when we try to put the necessity of bearing fruit worthy of repentance at odds with saving salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we're making two very critical mistakes. First, we're assuming that faith is nothing more than the, than the acceptance of certain facts. And the other is to assume that faith isn't seen by actions. But we know, really we know this isn't the case. What does James chapter 2 tell us about faith and works? All of us can quote that from memory. Faith without works is dead. Now that's significant, I think. Because you think about what the Bible says about life and death. People are spiritually dead Till they come to Christ and then they have spiritual or eternal life. So faith without works is dead. Does that imply they're saved but things aren't as it should be? Surely it doesn't. Surely in light of everything else the Bible says about life and death. Surely death there doesn't just mean it's not the way it should be but it's okay. Someone whose faith doesn't produce works has a 
a, a dead faith. It is not a faith that gives eternal life. It is exactly the same as someone who claims to have repented but has no fruits worthy of repenting. There is no tension between bearing fruit worthy of repentance and being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The tension is manufactured by those who want to minimize the necessity of bearing fruit worthy of repentance. Now, with this, we go back to the fact that the gospel is central to everything, right? So, we don't live differently in order to repent. We don't change our lives so we can repent. We don't change our lives so we can come to Christ. We don't change our lives to be saved. We don't change our lives to stay saved. No, that's not the way it works. We live differently. We change our lives because we have repented. I'm genuinely sorry of the sins I've done, so I don't want them anymore. We, we live differently because we have come to Christ. I mean, if there's a song by a guy named Matt Papa called This Changes Everything, you should look at it. And what he's talking about is he was raised in a church and he, he hears about Jesus dying, but then the guy up front says that he rose again. Is it, did, did, did nobody hear that? I mean, if that's real, that changes everything. If Jesus is who we say he is, and if he did what we say he did, how can coming to him not change us? So we don't live differently to come to Jesus. And I've come to Jesus. And I can't be the same. I, I, I can't go on the way I was. I don't live differently to be saved. I live differently because I'm saved. Everything is, is rooted in that first. I'm repenting, and so that's going to change me. I believe, and so I'm going to be different. I have come to Christ, and so I can't be the same. No one who came to Christ ever left the same except those who rejected him. Man, it is absolutely the same in our day. I don't care if they come to an altar and they pray and they cry and they weep and they wail and they mourn. If they get up and are exactly the same, they did not come to Christ at that moment. Repentance changes us. Faith in Christ changes us. And all of us who have repented are meant to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And kind of the point is, if we have repented, we will bear fruit worthy of repentance. So there's repentance toward God and then faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are two sides to the same coin. You cannot separate repentance and faith without destroying both. Now, faith, as, as Paul meant it, as Scripture means it, is not in a general way. Right? It's not enough to say, I have faith, there's a God out there somewhere. That is not a saving faith. It's not enough to say that there is a Jesus and He is and was real. That is not a saving faith. 
faith as it's meant in Scripture is very specific, very narrow. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Uh, page 864. Primarily, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. But before we get to verses 9 and 10, we have to understand the point Paul is building on. Verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire, prayer for Israel, they might be saved. For I bear them record, they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and go about establishing their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. Thank you. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to to everyone that believeth. Now, what Paul is saying in these verses, I am sorry for the way I sound, that's terrible. Paul is explaining one of his greatest desires is for the people of Israel to be saved. And, he knows that, that they have a great deal of enthusiasm for the Lord. But it's a misdirected enthusiasm. But the main problem is they do not understand the way God saves people. What they are trying to do is establish their own righteousness. Or to put it maybe in a more, what we would say, they're trying to save themselves. So they set out to keep the law in an effort to say, look at what I've done. I've earned my salvation. And Paul said that they are very zealous, but it's all misdirected. It's doing them no good. It's wasted effort because no one will ever be saved by keeping the law. Salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone. The way God has chosen to save his people is through faith in what Christ has done. So a, a key truth for us to catch here is the issue of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is so significant. To miss it is to miss everything. The Jews believed in God. They even believed in the right God. Right? I mean, they didn't worship Allah or Moloch or Baal. They worshipped Yahweh. The Jews were very zealous for God. They, they did the law. They separated themselves. They made the sacrifices. They did the stuff. They believed the Old Testament. They believed it was God's word to them. But still, the Jews were not saved because they were trying to establish their own righteousness rather than being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The truth is, Anyone sets out to become righteous or to get saved. But they don't do this through faith in Jesus. They are not saved. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Apart from Jesus, no one is saved. No matter how enthusiastic they are. No matter how earnest they are. No matter how much they believe it. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. So in verse 9 and 10, Paul says we must confess with our mouths and we must believe in our hearts. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, 
thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Right? So we are to confess something, and we are to believe something, and these things all go together. So we must confess Jesus as Lord. The phrase Jesus is Lord is probably the earliest Christian creed. And when the early church said Jesus is Lord, it wasn't just a a snazzy saying. They were saying two things. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. They were also saying, because of this, He is our Lord. It was a pledge. We will live for Him. Since He is God. Since He is Messiah. Since He is the Savior. He deserves preeminent place in our lives. And He will get that. And we will live for the glory of our King. Now, again, to me, this is a huge thing for us to get. Because in our day, many people want a Savior who comes with no strings attached. They want their sins forgiven, for sure. They don't want to go to hell. But they do not want the one who forgives their sins to make any demands on their lives. His job is to forgive their sins And leave them alone unless they get into a problem. Then he is to come running with guns a-blazing, as it were, to deliver them the rest of the time. They have it. They can handle their life. They don't need him. The problem, this is not Jesus. Jesus is Savior. Gloriously, he is Savior. But Jesus is also Lord. We cannot accept him as one without accepting him as the other. Jesus cannot be divided so that we can have a Savior here and a Lord there. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. We cannot take one without the other. We cannot truly Believe on Jesus without Savior or receive Jesus as Savior without also confessing Him as Lord. I think that's why Paul said, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. A part of believing in Jesus is confessing Him as Lord. Secondly, believe Jesus rose from the dead. So we have to Confess the Lord Jesus and then believe God has raised him from the dead. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. The resurrection is kind of the key doctrine of the Christian faith. It's been called the hinge on which Christianity swings. I think there's a couple of reasons it's so important. One, it reminds us that Jesus not only lived, but he lives. This is what separates Jesus from every other religious leader or political leader that's ever been or ever will be. Jesus didn't live and die. He lived and died and rose again, never to die. It's also so important because it reminds us his death had a purpose. 
So it always goes back to why did Jesus die? Right? His horrific death on the cross wasn't because he was a martyr for the cause. It wasn't because he made the wrong people angry. Uh, it was because of sin. The Bible, of course, teaches the wages of sin is death. Every sin earns that wage. The punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God is not merely physical death or spiritual death. It's eternal death. It is to be cast into hell for all of eternity. The horrors of hell show us what Jesus endured in our place on the cross. It was that wrath that Jesus took in place of all humanity on the cross. When Jesus died, he wasn't just being abused by the Romans. He was paying the penalty for the sins of all humanity, and he was suffering hell in place of all humanity. So this is where we see our faith. It is very specific and very narrow. It is faith in the person and the work of Christ on the, per, on the behalf of the person being saved. It's very personal. I have to believe Jesus did this for me. So a person must believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Not just sin out there somewhere. That's one thing. My sin. And this again, this is a huge obstacle in our day. People are proud. Arrogant. To look at what Jesus did on the cross and say, my sins deserve that. You're crazy. As long as someone holds to that, they cannot be saved. They must look at what Jesus endured and say, that was for me. My sins caused that. Must believe that Jesus rose on the third day. And they must believe Jesus' death and resurrection is the only hope for salvation they have. Again, this is a, a very critical element. There are no good works anyone can do to merit salvation. I read a quote this week from a guy named Paul Tripp. And he said, if you obey for a thousand years, you're no more accepted than when you first believed. Your acceptance is based on Christ's righteousness and not yours. Think about that. There is nothing anyone does to merit salvation. Right, again, we go back to Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. doesn't matter how well-intentioned. doesn't matter how zealous, how much it's believed. No good deeds earn salvation. No good deeds even help in salvation. Salvation rests wholly and completely in the finished work of Christ. So for a person to believe Jesus rose from the dead, to confess Jesus as Lord, they have to let go of any sort of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency they may have. They cannot cling to self-righteousness and the cross of Jesus at the same time. You have to let go of one to grab onto the other. Faith in Jesus means letting go of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency in order to cling to the cross and Jesus as the only means of righteousness and salvation. Again, this is, I say this, a huge thing. 
our culture does not like the idea we cannot, we don't add to it, we don't earn it, we don't help in it. That's what it is. If someone says, I had someone tell me once, I was sharing the gospel, she said she worked at a place with special needs kids, and, and people told her, boy, for how good you are here, you, you deserve to go to heaven. She believed it. She was never saved. She claimed to believe in Jesus, but she believed she earned her way to heaven. Can't go to heaven like that. Faith in Jesus requires us. It's not there is a God. It's not even that Jesus lived and died and rose again. That was for me. And apart from that, I cannot be saved. I am not saved. It is only in Christ. This is the kind of response we have to call for. We must call on people to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of response people must make in order to receive the gospel and be saved. People are saved as they receive the gospel through repentance and faith. I guess you could say people are only saved as they repent of their sins and believe the gospel. We must be clear on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,